0: You're listening to Raising Curious Learners, a podcast from Britannica for Parents, where we talk to experts and discuss issues and trends in child development, education, and parenting. Welcome back to Raising Curious Learners. I'm Elizabeth Romansky, and my co-host, as always, is Anne Gatzikowski. We love getting feedback from our podcast listeners and from readers of our own Britannica for Parents website. One of the suggestions that we received was a request to do a podcast
1: on the topic of children's sensory issues. That's such a great suggestion. I remember when I was a preschool teacher, Some of the children had sensitivities to certain types of stimulation, loud noises or bright lights, or maybe even the texture of the rug made them uncomfortable. And I would often wonder what was going on and if there was something that I could do to help them.
0: Yeah, we've also been hearing that kind of concern from parents as well. So we're very excited to welcome an occupational therapist to our podcast today. Erin Anderson is an OT
2: who works with children in the Chicago area. So welcome, Erin. Thanks, Elizabeth and Anne. It's great to be here. I'm excited to share some of the things Things about occupational therapy and some of the things that could help kiddos if parents are thinking their child might have some sensory processing difficulties.
0: Yeah. So Erin, can we start by just kind of introducing yourself to our podcast listeners and telling them a little bit
2: about what you do as well in your work? Sure. I would love to. So as Elizabeth and Ann said, I'm an occupational therapist and I've worked in the Chicagoland area for about 20 years, um, specifically working with children. So I've worked in the school setting, in early intervention, and in 2004, opened up my own practice, which has been great. So I've been seeing kids both in their home, and then eventually, I also have a clinic site.
1: So we're hearing about sensory issues from parents. So what what does that term mean? I, I see it popping up all over the place. What do we mean when we say sensory issues?
2: So we look at sensory processing, we kind of look at the five main senses that we all are Pretty familiar with, which include taste, smell, auditory, touch, and vision. In addition to those, there are a couple other senses, which is our vestibular processing and, fancy word, proprioception. <laughs> so any sensory issues can take place within any of those seven senses. We might see kiddos interpret them differently, so they might have what we would deem as big reactions to things within their environment, within those areas.
1: So, for example, one of my preschool children who just didn't want to sit on the rug because they just really didn't like the texture of the rug. Would you call
2: that a a sensory processing issue? I would definitely say it would be something that is kind of noxious to them or, you know, painful in a way. So they may have difficulty tolerating that sensation of the rug. And then I would say, as both sort of a parent um, and an occupational therapist, the reason to address that would be if it's getting in the way of kind of their learning. So if that kiddo had a hard time sitting there because they felt very uncomfortable, which is very real to them, then they're not going to be able to take in information and listen to the story you're trying to read or the lesson you're trying to teach.
1: So this, this child I'm thinking of, they were fine sitting in a chair on the rug, but they just didn't want to sit. It on the rug. So we found a, an easy workaround. And I don't think this child had any other issues that I'm aware of. I think they just really didn't like that rug. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And I I also know from experience of of kids who don't like certain clothes, like the the fabric of their clothes can be a really big concern. And so parents have to make sure that, you know, they have a specific type that will kind of make them feel a little bit more comfortable. That's a lot of um, what we've been talking about so far is kind of that tactile, like touch sensation. So what are some examples of other
2: sensory issues that you mentioned earlier? So for example, one thing we see a lot, especially with younger children is sound. So kids can have big reactions to like the vacuum cleaner and they might, you know, run the other way or cover their ears. They may also have trouble with like automatic toilets flushing. I mean, my son even had that and I didn't realize we were trying to do potty training, going on vacation, which has its pros and cons. (laughs) I would not really suggest that. But in the airport, you know, the automatic toilets, it was a nightmare. So there are things that you may not even realize that your child might be sensitive to that are loud and noxious. And again, I think something that we look at as... As occupational therapists and parents do it, teachers do it, anyone, nannies, anyone who's interacting with these children is you're sort of trying to be a detective. You know, so Anne said for that child, the tactile piece was really the rug. And that was the big thing that bothered that child. And they could do a quick fix by putting him in a chair. That's not someone I would say would be referred to occupational therapy. So part of it is trying to find out how large the problem is, looking at the child's reaction to whatever that sensation is. So auditory is a pretty common one that we see with children. Taste, kids can definitely have large reactions to certain tastes and textures. And that can be pretty common at certain ages, between one and three, and then they tend to grow out of it. And smell, some kiddos have large reactions to smell, like citrus tends to be a big one. So we look at, as a therapist, educator, parent, is that getting in the way of their daily function? So I've had children who stopped like going into the snack area or stopped going into the lunchroom because it was so strong for them. That was when we addressed it.
1: So tell us more about your role. So what happens when a family comes to you and how how do you get to know them and, and how do you decide how to help that child?
2: We often take calls from parents and we do a lot of education around preschools and within the school to help both parents and educators decide should the child come to me. And if they do, we do a lot of work with the family at first, like kind of in an intake process. So tell us about your child. What do those sensory difficulties look like? So we really look at their independent functioning. So as an occupational therapist, my job is to help that child in their occupation. So I know it can be overwhelming to parents if someone were to suggest take your child to an occupational therapist. So how we explain it is first we look at what the child's occupation is, which is peer interactions, interacting with their environment successfully so that they can grow, learn, and play. It's great because we really get an opportunity to get to know the child and the family, and we want them to be most successful in their environment. One of the things that we look at If they actually come into our office, we would do the intake with the parents and then we would do several things to help if they do have sensory difficulty.
0: So say your child has a strong aversion to the vacuum or loud noises where it does interrupt their ability to go about their day. How would you work with that child? And I know that that's a very loaded question and it is very involved, but can you share some steps and even what the goal is? You know, so sometimes therapists say that the goal isn't necessarily to fix a problem, but it's to help cope and help find a way to best eliminate as much of that aversion as possible. So the first part of that question would be, you know, at a high level, how do you go about helping that child? And then the second question is, as an OT, what do you have as a goal for the kids who come into your practice?
2: Okay, so when the child comes, so the first part would be the parents to fill out some questionnaires, and then the child would come in to our office. And it's very play-based, the way that we run our clinic in particular, is that it is play-based and it's helping to develop the goals. We really want the parents' input. So, you know, I will work with the child. I would look at their development overall. So it's not just, you know, kind of focusing in on the problem, <laughs> but that is a big piece of as to why they come in. Often, if children would qualify for occupational therapy, we take what the parents have into consideration. They might come in because they can no longer vacuum during the day because the kiddo is just undone by the noise, or now it's transferred to, now they can't go to family parties pre-COVID, or, you know, birthday parties because the noise is just too much. So it's stopping them, that child, from being successful in their occupation as a child and interacting with their environment. We will take into consideration across the board what the kiddo is able to do and what they're having trouble doing. We can treat sensory processing in a variety of ways. So we would break it down into smaller parts. We may put on background information Information and see, can they filter whatever information it is while we play games and work with them? At the same time, we do a lot of body work. So There's so many ways to help kind of all of us be more comfortable with noxious stimuli. You know, if you get motion sick, then we're going to provide motion like kids who have difficulty with that, Mm -hmm. but in a safe, comfortable, calm way. And we know as therapists, pressure on the body is very calming. So we would add pressure to them while adding movement for the auditory child. As I said, we might change the volume while we're working with them, while also doing that body work to help show them that they're safe. Because kids, often the loud noise for them, it puts their bodies in fight or flight. We're trying to help calm their body and help them feel safe. We also use like verbal mediation, telling them like, it's safe. It's just a vacuum. I know it's loud, but here are some things we can do. So I think, Elizabeth, to your point, as therapists, especially with little ones, we work on both adaptation, do we have have to do the vacuum right away at 9 a.m. Maybe their bodies are better prepared for it later in the day. And we also work on remediation, which is a big piece. So it's really helping to integrate their nervous system because the brain is plastic, which is fantastic. And our nervous system is very malleable. And there's so many ways we can help it interpret information correctly by giving it support in other ways.
1: You know, you mentioned pressure, and that reminds me of all the ads I'm seeing lately for weighted blankets. (laughs) And not even necessarily for children, but for mm-hmm. adults too. What what does a weighted blanket do?
2: So when you think of the body and we have like the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and they work together because we need the sympathetic nervous system to have us with our fight or flight. If you do touch something that's hot, you should get a reaction and that your brain is telling you, get your hand off the stove. So they're both in good use and same with the sound. If you hear a loud sound coming, you should should pull over when you're driving and you hear a loud sound because we know to pull over for ambulance fire trucks. And then the parasympathetic kind of calms us back down, right? Regulates our heartbeat. So when we look at something like a tool, like a weighted blanket, and that goes with that sense I was talking about proprioception, which is pressure to your muscles and joints. So a weighted blanket is giving you passive pressure to your muscles and joints, which feels calming to... 90% probably of the population. What it does is it sort of like helps to bring in that parasympathetic, you know, activate that nervous system to calm us down.
1: That makes sense. And so maybe we're seeing more ads for blankets like that because people are more stressed out lately because of the pandemic or for other reasons too.
2: I think so. And I do think that a lot of things that might start out therapeutic, I think in a grateful way, kind of become more mainstream. I believe that we all have sensory processing difficulties and we all have things that feel good to some and not feel good to others. And part of our job as therapists is to educate, especially in the pediatric population, part of our job as therapists is to educate parents as well and kind of looking at what is calming to us and what do we do maybe to stay alert or to calm down and help apply some of those to our kiddos. Because children are brilliant, I think, and they know what their body needs. They might just not know the best way to go about getting it.
1: That also reminds me of fidget spinners. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) which I don't see as often anymore. But for a while, everybody had to have a fidget spinner. So, But what
2: what do those do? Do they really calm people down? Yes. So fidgeting, I mean, that's like one of the oldest uses. And there's a ton of research out there that fidgeting really helps either to like alert or focus you. So back in the day, like I chewed on my pen cap, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. resulted in disgustingness. And (laughs) again, it was like pre-germs, but it wasn't really hurting anyone. You know, I mean, no one wanted to use my pens, which I guess is okay. So that was like an oral motor fidget of sorts. People used to like, I mean, I don't even know if they make many pens like that anymore. The pens you could click up and down, mm-hmm. which was a fidget. You know, people use necklaces, earrings. So as adults, we use all those things. Like children are supposed to sit there with quiet hands in their lap and attend for really long amounts of time. What about, I remember,
0: I've grown out of it, but in grade school, I had to take a test my leg would not stop moving. It was just this constant up and down, up and Mm -hmm. down, up and down. And I don't know if it, maybe it did help me focus, but in that moment it was like test. Okay. Now my leg is moving. (laughs) Is that another fidget response? And is it actually because of just the nerves or is it also my body's way of trying to like refocus
2: on the task at hand? Yes. I think Elizabeth, it's definitely your body knows that it needs some movement in order to keep you engaged in what you were doing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's to increase your alertness. People do that a lot when they're tired, you see them do that. And thank goodness, like your teacher allowed you to do it. I think it's, (laughs) I think it's tricky now because like we used to just fidget with a paperclip or whatever was available to you. Now it's, marketing, which is brilliant, but like, let's make actual fidgets and sell them as fidgets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're great until they become a distraction. So I think a lot of that too, just needs to have education around it. Like rather than us saying like, no more fidget spinners, but now you can use the fidget cue or, you know, you can use the squeezy, no more balls because you'll throw them. But I think part of it is educating our young kids and letting them know, like, you know what, especially during this pandemic, like it's okay to move. I don't sit in front of a screen for six hours. I would go crazy, but our children are expected to. And that is really tricky.
1: Mm -hmm. So speaking of the pandemic, tell us how it's changed your practice and how you're seeing children and tell us if it's changed the behaviors that you're seeing in your, your little clients.
2: That's a really good question. I think within the pandemic, it stopped so much of everything. And for me, I've always felt so blessed to have like a profession and a life profession, always thinking, you know, I will always have a job, it'll be very easy to get a job if for some reason you need to change jobs. And so this turned into like telehealth doing things over a screen. So it was crazy. I went in within one week. My practice went from 83 clients to three because no one kind of knew how to pivot. Not me as a therapist and as an owner of a practice, um, not my therapist, not the parents, not the kiddos. In time, we learned through telehealth that we could do a lot. There were definitely some great aspects. The parents had another role, which was very stressful because now they were working parenting, you know, as well as becoming their teacher and their therapist. So it was a lot, but it was cool as we got through the crisis piece. Really cool for us as therapists to have the parents really involved. They were sort of our hands. So we really worked on our speech skills to tell them what to do. It was neat to be able to see them in their home environment because you can say whatever you want. And I'm sure you guys have seen this as, you know, educators, but it's really easy for me as a therapist in my perfect little cozy room with every tool that's totally appropriate for children (laughs) to be like, hey, go ahead, go home and do this and see how this goes, you know? So I'd say one of the neatest parts was being able to look around their house and be like, oh, so do you see that chair? We're going to jump off it, but into those couch kitchens, as long as you're okay with it, and then we're going to smush them and then they're going to crawl and get that ball and toss it to you. There were some really cool parts to see and help parents use what's in their environment as therapy tools. That's interesting.
0: I was going to ask you. A little bit more about that. I have a friend who is a therapist um, and deals a lot with children and, and around grief. And what she had done in her own office was she always had tools like that as well. So kids, you know, if they needed to squish a ball or whatever while they talked to her, they had that. But now with telehealth, one thing I was talking to her, I said, Do you still have those things? Or do you ask the parents to, you know, if they can, can they yeah. provide some things? And so it sounds like for the most part, our Are you trying to have whatever's in the house kind of be in place of those tools? Or are there some things that you use in the office that aren't available in the homes where you've had to kind of navigate that and see if there's a way to provide that for those
2: kids? We've definitely had to pick and choose depending on the client. Definitely, we've become very creative. Tape is one of our best friends because you can do so much with tape on the ground. And I'm sure you guys have seen stuff, you know, painters tape for obstacle courses and all kinds of activities. Activities. And we use like paper clips, rubber bands to do different hand strengthening things. We use a lot of scrap paper because you can tear it, throw it up, crunch it into balls. It's a great fine motor hand strength, as well as a sensory tool. You know, blankets to roll kids up in burritos. One of the things that we've really tried is not to have another thing placed on parents. You know, it's been interesting, depending on the child's age, like the grade school kiddos, it's easier in a lot of ways and they can manage a lot of that themselves. They're more tech savvy than me. So as long as they can have like their little bag of tools, you know, it takes one time to get their scissors, markers, tape, pens, paper, so that parents don't have to have another thing to get them on for therapy. So that was my goal, both as a therapist, but honestly, as a business owner too, because I know that they are taxed and what are they going to cut Out is an extra, right? And we became an extra thing for them to do, even though it's so pivotal. Because you're mandated by law to get on to school, of course. And that was even hard for some families. So we really tried to be there for them therapeutically in whatever that looked like. So whether it was we will send you everything, do it on your own, to where some parents could get on every week, to some kiddos didn't have therapy for nine months. And that is a very long time. You know, the screen time. Sometimes not great for any kiddos, but you have a kid with autism that it's very hard to get them to comply with things and you're just trying to make it through your day to get on and even know that child loves seeing me. They did not love seeing me on a screen and it was very confusing.
1: Yes, I can imagine that, you know, the prevalence of screens and remote learning in the lives of families now, if a child has that kind of visual or auditory or, you know, has some of those sensitivities, that could make it worse, couldn't it? Yes.
2: I mean, screen time used to be sort of, I think in most people's lives, or at least in the lives of children, we would use it as rewards. I mean, that was where they got like their playtime, right? So then I think when we shifted to during the pandemic, having to do the learning, that alone was really tricky for a lot of kiddos. Because even in my family, the kids want to then, you know, have their screen time to play a couple games. And I'm like, but you've been on for six hours. Mm -hmm. They're getting headaches. It does change their brain chemistry. You know, there's already things coming out about their vision like dry eye. And I never had dry. I mean, I was really lucky. My profession was never really on the screen. (laughs) So all of a sudden, you know, my Apple watch is like your move rings haven't changed at all. You know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> everything is going screwy and, and my eyes were getting dry and I was sitting down my back was hurting so we all were going through this and so were our children which I do think will affect a lot of us as we come out of this I think we'll have learned a lot about our sensory systems and that movement is key and natural movement as much as possible is key for all of us
0: don't go anywhere we'll be right back after this short break
1: Hi everyone. This episode is brought to you by Britannica Premium. With the world and the news around us changing by the second, reliable information is more important than ever. Consider supporting our quest for the truth with a Britannica Premium membership and gain access to over 1 million pages of fact-checked content, digitized collections of our first edition, and more. Go to britannica.com/premium30 to get 30% off your subscription today.
0: Hi everyone. Did you know that Britannica designed a safe and trusted site that allows kids to be kids? On Britannica Kids, you'll find exciting educational content for all age groups. Go to kids.britannica.com kids30 to get 30% off your
1: subscription today. So we're recording this podcast in January of 2021. Have you seen any clients in person since the pandemic
2: began? Yes. So we started to go back in person in July. Started with our kind of priority clients like children and or parents that could not make it work via telehealth. So everyone wears masks. It's amazing. Back to our sensory talk, how kiddos who literally still can't even wear pants, they only wear shorts, but they can tolerate a mask. It goes back to that brain being plastic and that want and desire to have that one-on-one time and to come in and work on the swings and be in our clinic. They've done so well. I have some two-year-olds and that the mask is still tricky, but they are too. Mm -hmm. But honestly, from three up to 23 is the range I see they all wear their masks. We wash our hands. It's a limited number of kiddos in the office. You know, we feel like we've been able to do it safe under the guidelines. And so far it has been. Thank goodness. It's been so nice to be in person with them.
1: That's great to hear about the masks. I'm remembering, Elizabeth, one of our very first podcasts we did ever, which was back in the spring, was about masks. And yeah. that was just when things were just starting to open up a little bit. And it was really hard at that time to believe that young children would, would even wear masks. At all, but I'm I'm hearing that from preschool teachers all over the place that it just has not been as hard as they thought it would be.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, and I also think it's really amazing that you've been able to make it work as best you can by allowing it to still be in person. Because what you do, it requires so much of that, you know, in person experience to make things truly, I feel, you know, comfortable for both parties and just easy to work with. And since we spoke a little bit earlier about how you said uh, when you first kind of had to lock down. You started to lose some clients or not lose them, but they weren't able to necessarily right away make it work by doing it telehealth. As this has gone on for as long as it has, have you seen actually an influx of new clients? And if you have, has there been sort of this overarching thing that maybe you're seeing the pandemic is bringing about with kids? I'm I'm trying to think of an example of, you know, oh, actually, lately we've seen more kids come in with, you know, sensory issues dealing with like screens because they're always in front of screens and, and that's kind mm-hmm. of evolved into
2: that. Like, has there been any of that? There have been some clients who, interestingly enough, I think in being with their children and being on a screen and being at home learning, there are some kiddos who might have been like on my radar that people, you know, the parents have reached out and they weren't sure in the school. We talked with the school a few times. And it's interesting because those parents, I think just in trying themselves to help their children learn... And teach them have realized like, oh, maybe this is a problem. So I definitely have had some clients come to us that we may have identified through a screening or something that yes, occupational therapy would be beneficial. And the parents then in having that concentrated time with their children, especially with the learning piece have decided, yes, you know what, you're right. This isn't maybe typical. And maybe we didn't realize how difficult it was for them to sit and attend or be able to do their work with that level of independence that is expected that age. So that's been one category of people. We've had other people come in who, interestingly enough, and I didn't really realize it until the pediatrician said something when I was at our visit, you know, that kids are getting like these COVID pounds and their lack of moving mm. because even when you're at school, and I'm sure we would all see it in office buildings, you just get up and move, you know, going from here to there, or getting something. And if you are online for five hours minus, like your planned recess or your planned lunch break and you're at home where food is accessible, I think the lack of movement is getting really hard for kids. I think they are gaining weight. They're kind of decreasing in their endurance and their sustainability. So getting them out, especially as we're entering into winter, I think is going to have to become a priority for everyone. You know, like making that part of their day that they're getting outside time, whatever that looks like. So that has been a piece we've seen too a Elizabeth with kiddos coming in. I actually think I probably am not seeing it yet, but I will. I think when kiddos enter in the classroom again, the social ramifications, it's going to be a little tricky. Mm -hmm. Managing their attention within this classroom environment again, I think will be hard for some kids. And having to manage other peers physically, the noise, again, the sights, the smells, being able to attend within like a busier environment than what might be in their bedroom. I could imagine that that will be sort of another influx. Of children. Yeah,
1: we have children who are, you know, three, four, five, or six years old right now and doing remote learning. And some of them have never been in an ordinary classroom before. Mm -hmm. So that's really amazing to think about. And, you know, I'm sure that most of them will be very resilient and they'll pick up pretty quickly what it is to be in a classroom and how you treat each other. But I'm sure there are some children that will need additional supports to figure that out.
2: Yes, I think so. I think, I mean, honestly, I think some kiddos have probably really enjoyed being at home and, you know, have that like attachment. And it's been great. It will depend on the child. I think there will be there's those certain children that like kind of reentering the classroom may be more difficult than one would expect for them.
0: We, we spoke a little bit about this at the beginning of the podcast, but just as a reiteration, you know, a lot of parents may be listening to this and there's still that kind of feeling of, oh, well, my child, you know, hates, broccoli and they have an aversion to broccoli. But to that point, maybe it's an issue and maybe it's just the kid's a picky eater and they don't like broccoli. We've talked about a disruption, but is there a a kind of a clearer picture that you can provide parents so that they understand maybe when it should be a concern and when it's just normal child behavior? Just because I know, especially now with all the other worries that parents have, there might be that extra concern of like, oh, is there something I need to be more involved
2: with or aware of? Definitely. Well, like just a little tidbit of the eating piece, you know, toddlers are picky eaters and that's their job. And they do what we call like a food jag, like have their top five foods and they can get stuck on those, especially between the ages of one to three. So the key with eating in particular is just to definitely keep introducing new foods the entire time. And, you know, my pediatrician gave us some great advice that I would definitely agree with. If it's something like eating to definitely look at what they eat over a week. So, you know, maybe they had two or three like bad days where they weren't eating much or they were only eating a couple things, but sort of to look at that piece over a week Mm -hmm. and also looking at, you know, noise and sound and kids are covering their ears and and it might just be because they haven't really been out in nine months to a noisy Mm -hmm. place. So I think everyone needs to be a little gentle with themselves as we reintegrate into the world, but looking at your child, they are naturally wanting to play please others. And, you know, especially with positive reinforcement and getting rewards. So I think if they're getting a little stuck on something, whether it be sound, noise, touch, or behaviors, you know, trying a little star chart, trying a reward with them, keeping it very simple and very consistent. You know, every day at snack time. We're going to try something new to keep it fun. And then they get a sticker doing small measurable goals and trying some of these things on your own to see like, gosh, is this really having an impact on their lives where they cannot get unstuck from whatever it is. And then it's kind of affecting the whole family. I think that's a good thing to ask yourself as a parent, you know, is this making it hard for us to get out of the house? Are we all hating dinner time? Is morning the worst part of our day? More often than, not. So kind of trying to look at the forest as a whole to see, should we get intervention?
0: And I think what you also said was time, you know, you being gentle with kind of the transition back into things, but also giving it a little bit more time. Is it a pattern? And to your point of it, a week, a couple bad days are normal as well. But in the grand scheme of things, was it overall an okay week? And is the next week kind of following that same pattern or whatnot? So I think a time it sounds like might be another piece of it.
2: Yes. Looking at time and I would say like the frequency, the intensity and the duration of the behaviors are something we tend to look at as therapists. And it's good to look at as a parent for a milestone, you know, because you will tend to see if there is an overarching difficulty or issue or something that needs to be addressed. You can look at their frequency, intensity, duration, whatever behavior. So as a child, that's the sign that something's going on is that you exhibit a behavior. Actually, anyone.
1: <laughs> Adults, too. Yeah, I mean, so much of this advice is really relevant to every family, whether they have a specific concern about their child's behavior, sensory um, reactions or not. And this has been so fantastic. And I I feel like we could talk on and on, but I know we need to wrap up. So I'm wondering for a final question, if you wouldn't mind, I've been thinking about the advice we give parents for bedtime, for happy bedtimes. And I was wondering if maybe you could leave us with a little bit of advice about how to help children calm down and relax in the evening and have a good night's sleep.
2: Oh, definitely. I think one thing about calming down, you know, something that's nice is to, I feel like, especially in the... continued day and age where there's just so much going on in the world is to maybe do a high and a low, like talking with kiddos about both those positive emotions and letting them know that you can have negative emotions. And in a place of calmness, it's kind of nice at dinner because it's hard for kiddos maybe to say, you know, tell me about your day. Such an open-ended question. It's even hard for me as an adult. (laughs) And there might be parts you don't want to relive. But so maybe starting with like a high and a low of your day. I think also providing some of that one-on-one time, if possible. We are all so busy and everyone as parents, I think sometimes feel like you're in the, wrong place at the wrong time always, and you should be doing more. So I feel like um, something that I've told a lot of families and I've tried to do is called the 911 of play, where we do nine minutes, one-on-one attention and one toy or book or car or baby doll. And you put your phone down. Kids don't really need a lot. Amazingly getting just nine minutes and you know what, you might have to set the timer and it's okay. Again, as a parent, be gentle with yourself. There will be dishes. laundry, dogs barking, things going on, but giving them that one-on-one attention is amazing how much it feeds their soul and yours. And it's okay if it feels like a job at first because it's something new, but eventually I think that intrinsic reward really will shine through.
1: Wow. That's fantastic advice. Thank you, Erin. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it and I hope that it's been really helpful to our listeners.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. It was really, really nice to be able to chat with you as, you know, Anne, as an educator and you, Elizabeth, to be able to talk about our children and our, they're the future of obviously our, you know, world and any way we can help them stay calm and regulated and engaged with us is great. Thanks for tuning in to this episode
0: of Raising Curious Learners. Special thanks to our guest this week, Erin Anderson, licensed occupational therapist, for giving us some insight into the struggles children face with sensory processing issues. If you're interested in learning more about Erin's practice, you can find her clinic online at www.erinandersonassociates.com. I'm Elizabeth Romansky, and my co-host is Anne Gadzikowski. Our audio engineer and editor for this program is Emily Goldstein. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share with your friends. This episode is copyrighted by Encyclopedia Britannica Incorporated, all rights reserved.
1: Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Britannica for Parents, a free site with expert advice for your tech-savvy family needs. Whether it's explaining Zoom to your three-year-old, navigating your child's new friendship with Siri, or more serious topics like talking to young children about the police or sending your kids back to school during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're here to help with resources for parents of all age groups. Check us out at parents.britannica.com.